In exile with 400 men in the cave of Adullam, David is now admonished to flee from the wrath of Saul by the prophet Gad, leaving Ahimelech vulnerable before the evil intentions of the murderous Saul. This is the 47th sermon in the series Dynasty, Lordship and Authority, an exposition on the first book of Samuel. A roll covenant reading coming from 1 Samuel and chapter 22, chapter 22, beginning in verse 6 through the end of the chapter, verse 23. 1 Samuel and chapter 22, beginning in verse 6 through the end of the chapter. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, When Saul heard that David was discovered and the men that were with him, now Saul abode in Gibeah under a tree in Ramah, having a spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. Then Saul said unto his servants that stood about him, Hear now, ye Benjamites, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards, and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? That all of you have conspired against me, and there is none that showeth me that my son hath made a league with the son of Jesse? And there is none of you that is sorry for me, or showeth unto me that my, my son hath stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, which was set over the servants of Saul, and said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahatub, and inquired of the Lord for him, and gave him victuals, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent to call Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahatub, and all his father's house, the priests that were in Nob. And they came, all of them, to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, thou son of Ahatub. And he answered and said, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said unto him, Why have ye conspired against me, thou and the son of Jesse, and that thou hast given him bread and a sword, and hast inquired of God for him, that he should rise against me? to lie in wait as at this day. Then Himelech answered the king and said, And who is so faithful among all thy servants as David, which is the king's son-in-law, and goeth at thy bidding, and is honorable in thine house? Did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Be it far from me, let not the king impute anything unto his servant, nor to all the house of my father, for all thy servant knew nothing of all this, less or more. And the king said, Thou shalt surely die, Ahimelech, thou and all thy father's house. And the king said unto the footmen that stood about him, Turn and slay the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David, and because they knew when he fled and did not show it to me. But the servants of the king would not put forth their hand to fall upon the priests of the Lord. And the king said to Doeg, Turn thou and fall upon the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned, and he fell upon the priests, and slew on that day fourscore and five persons that did wear a linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, smote he with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and sucklings, and oxen and asses and sheep with the edge of the sword. And one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Hahatab, named Abathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abathar showed David that Saul had slain the Lord's priests. And David said unto Abathar, I knew it that day, when Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of thy father's house. Abide thou with me, fear not, 
For he that seeketh my life seeketh thy life. But with me thou shalt be in safeguard. The Apostle Paul writing to the church at Rome, Romans in chapter 3, beginning in verse 10 through verse 18. By the same spirit, the Apostle says this, As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They're all gone out of the way. They're all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There was no fear of God before their eyes. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. David is now joined by his brethren and 400 men who have fled from murderous Saul to hide with David in the cave of Adullam. No longer alone in his exile, as he was at one point very much alone in his exile, he is now comforted by these men who now make up David's entire army, all of whom are hiding together from the king and from the king's men. And as we have already seen, this transition of allegiances and alliances has a gospel significance as these four men of desperation, debt, and despair align themselves with David, typifying Christ and away from Saul, typifying Adam and the Adamic nature. So they go from the wicked Saul to the glorious, righteous David. However, this Adullam exile is very short-lived. Praying for God's direction, faithful David, remember David is praying for God's direction, not moving uh, an inch until he knows for sure what God would have him to do. Praying for that direction, faithful David is speedily answered by God through the prophet Gad, and he is told that he and his men must immediately leave the cave of Adullam to Harith. Obviously, David's whereabouts are now known to Saul. Amazing, without internet, without telephone, without telegraph, without anything. Saul knows where David now is. So God tells him, now you must leave and flee from the cave of Adullam. And so happily, God sends his prophet Gad to warn David that he's no longer safe in the cave and that he should move himself, removing himself from the cave, bringing with him his men to the land of Judah and hide in the forest of Hereth. Now consider for a moment the psychological and spiritual state of Saul when he learns of David's whereabouts. Remember, he's already on the brink When Saul heard that David was discovered and the men that were with him, now Saul abode in Gibeah under a tree in Ramah, notice, having his spear in his hand and all his servants were standing about him. First, Saul is found in Gibeah under a tree in Ramah. Now to be sitting under a tree seems to imply that Saul is sitting there holding court. He is the king, of course, and now he's, he's taken a seat under a tree in Ramah as a man who is going to be judged, holding court. And what makes this conclusion most likely is that all of his servants are gathered around him as he prepares his case against David, because that is what he's going to do. He's going to justify his anger against David and David's 
his legitimacy to be alive still. So he's going to declare among his people, his servants, why David should be executed. Second, while David only has acted insane before the king of Gath, David only acting. Saul, however, is actually insane himself. He's not acting. He's actually out of his mind, which results in this paranoia, sitting under a tree, holding court before his men with his spear in his hand. So at first we might surmise that having a ready spear, Saul is ready to defend himself or or, or kill David at a moment's notice, and yet David is nowhere to be found. In fact, he's surrounded by his men. He's not paranoid over David that he would be there to kill him. What seems to be more plausible is that Saul's spear may actually be aimed at his own men should they rebel because he's holding court and he's going to charge his men for infidelity. And so this threatening posture, and that's what it was. He's building a psychological posture against his men, aiming his spear at them, and this threatening posture was aimed not at David, but David again was nowhere to be found, but rather at Saul's own servants. And this is the posture of a madman. This is the posture of a mad tyrant. What Saul is actually saying is, if anyone dares to defy me, whether or not my cause is just, if anyone dares to defy me, I will smite him to the wall with my spear, as I sought to do to David. Remember, everyone knew about that. In other words, if you defy me, you will feel my wrath. A tyrant's default posture is to intimidate. And that is what Saul is doing. Acting as a tyrant, because that's what he is, a murderous man, he is now intimidating. Saul is manufacturing a fear scenario in order to control his subjects. Saul is also saying that if you want to participate in my kingdom, you need to comply or else. And this is akin to what nations are doing around the world, especially today with the vaccine mandate that is, of course, not a vaccine, but rather an experimental drug, killed more people than it's being reported, not to mention making people sick and not really protecting them against any sickness whatsoever. And this is what is happening in nations around the world and here in our own America with the proposed vaccine passports. If you do not comply, you will forfeit. Saul is saying that if you want to have liberty, the liberty of functioning freely as a member of my kingdom, you must become a slave to my will. And I am going to hold court under the tree in Rama. And this is what tyrannical governments do. In fact, just recently it was proposed in New York City that if you want to participate in society fully, you've got to be vaccinated. It's no wonder why people in France and Italy and England, Germany and so many other nations are now taking to the streets and rioting against such tyranny. But of course you won't hear about this from the Marxist compromised corrupt media. But that is what is happening. You see, Saul is out of his mind. He's absolutely crazy, as is so many of these tyrannical power mongers of reprobation. But it does get worse. Saul then seeks to bribe his people with the promise of payoffs. He knows that if he just intimidates them, his one man intimidating an entire army, that might not work. It's worth a shot, but it may not work. So he's going to back that up with payoffs, with bribery. Notice verse 7. 
Then Saul said unto his servants that stood about him, Hear now, ye Benjamites. Now, of course, Saul's a Benjamite. He's seeking to say, Come on, brothers. Don't you want to stand by me? We're all in this together. We, we want to be unified. While he's causing disunity. Come on, brothers. Hear now, brothers. Let me argue my case before you. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? He's not going to do anything for you. As if to say, I would. Is he going to make you captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? Certainly he's not, as I would. So Saul is openly confessing that he will bribe them with fields and vineyards and, and positions of power and positions of influence. This is a desperate man. These are words of a wicked man. Intimidation, desperation, bribery, all are hallmarks of wickedness and a dark evil that is always met with destruction and the wrath of God. Saul is also confessing his Marxist philosophy of fascism and socialism. First, He's a socialist in that the only way he can give what he promises is by stealing it from others and redistributing it to his faithful dogs, those servants of Saul. Second, in addition to being a thief, he's also a briber promising incentives for those that bow to his will. We see that today with the incentives by the federal and state governments to take the vaccine for an incentive of $100. There's nothing new under the sun. Tyranny is tyranny. We'll always have the same hallmarks. If you don't take the gift, then you get met with oppressive social and economic restrictions. In fact, it was recently proposed that the unvaxxed may be unfairly taxed in order to abide by their conscience. So if you don't want to put anything dangerous into your body, now the federal government says, we're going to tax you. This is tyranny. It's madness. No longer soft tyranny. But hard, cold, tyrannical rule, fascism. Thirdly, Saul is a Marxist hypocrite. Note how he addresses his followers. Hear now, brothers, ye Benjamites. So he's now saying, look, we're all of one tribe. We shouldn't be worried about the, the tribe of Judah or the tribe of Levi. He pits the tribe of Benjamin and the Benjamites against the tribe of Judah the tribe of Levi and all the other tribes, especially the lineage of David, in the same way as the Marxists pit one social or racial group against one another in such a radical fashion. We see this today with the left's attempt to pit one class against another in typical Marxist fashion through the re-education system of the youth. Let's pit one against the other. Marxist fascism and socialism is all about dominion in the same way as Saul's entire fabric of being is a quest for domination and the establishment of a Benjamite dynasty. That's what he wanted. Saul was seeking to establish and secure an ironclad dynasty for himself. And this is what the Adamic nature desires. And they will do anything, anything whatsoever, in order to secure it. They will be as God. And we see this today. Again, 
We see this today within the Democratic Socialist Party who crafts policies of dominance with legislation like the AR-1 for the People Act and the allowances of illegal aliens into the nation of America. All of this is an attempt to secure a one-party dynasty. Notice what Mark Levin explains. He says this, Marxism is not about free speech and debate. It's about domination, repression, conformity, and compliance. That's what Saul was doing. Observe Saul's narcissistic paranoia. Verse 8, that all of you have conspired against me. Notice, you're all conspiring against me. This is a man of paranoia, not only insanity and madness, tyrannical rule. All of you have conspired against me. And there is none that showeth me that my son hath made a league with the son of Jesse. And there is none of you that is sorry for me. Can you just imagine? Can you just hear it? You're not sorry for me. Oh, show it unto me that my son hath stood up my servant against me to lay in witness this day. I'm just so frustrated. This is a man of insanity. And all you need to do to hear this in the 21st century is to turn on MSN, LSD, or any other the communist news networks. Carefully consider what he's saying. All of you have conspired against me. That wasn't even true. Did everyone conspire against him? Is everyone out for him? Is everyone out to get him? Was everyone's motive to conspire against Saul? Did they even know what was happening? And this is paranoia. Certainly not everyone was involved in a conspiracy, if at all anyone was involved in a conspiracy. Secondly, the next charge is that no one informed him of the covenant that Jonathan and David made together. And there is none that showeth me that my son hath made a league with the son of Jesse. So the question is, did anyone even know of the agreement that Jonathan and David made? They did it privately in a field. Even if these men knew of the covenant between Jonathan and David, it was made while David was still in the good graces of Saul. They wouldn't have even thought of anything about it. This is what brothers do. It might have been assumed that Saul knew of the agreement. And since he did not condemn it, he agreed to it as well. And yet Saul is now accusing his servants of hiding this oath from him in an all-out conspiracy against him. Paranoia, paranoia, narcissistic paranoia. Thirdly, Saul says this, and there is none of you that is sorry for me. This is evidence of a self-consuming narcissistic psychosis. Look at me. Pity me. Focus upon my plight, my pain, my hardship, my sorrow. You're not listening to me. You're not taking the vaccine. You're not wearing the mask. You're not closing this, the churches. You're doing this. You're doing that. You're not listening. This is a man who has lost himself in insanity. None of you is sorry for me. Why are you not following me? Why are you not following my politics, my policies, my administration? This is the Adamic nature of men who have been removed from any semblance of restraining grace whatsoever. They're focused on themselves. Woe is me. Look at me. Introspection. Navel-gazing narcissistic ideology. But this is not to be the posture of the new man. The self-consumed narcissist is seeped in the mindset that the world revolves him or her and that their station, their position in life, their situation 
is uniquely horrible. Narcissists are on a therapeutic quest for others to pity them and then provide comfort through sympathy. That is why the churches in America are full to overflowing. Because many of them are providing therapeutic, it's not your fault. It's okay. Jesus loves you anyway. So don't even try to mortify anyone's sin. You see, the narcissist is perversely self-aware to the point of shutting out everyone and everything else that refuses to provide therapeutic sensitivity to their individual needs. I have been accused of being too harsh on individuals that refuse to repent because they want sympathy. They want a pastor to be empathetic when there's no repentance, when there is no sorrow over sin. Because they want someone to be sensitive, to provide for them therapy, rather than a call to repentance. They don't want answers to their problem. They simply want pity. Saul just wanted pity. He wanted understanding. He wanted sympathy. He wanted empathy. These narcissists want people to feel sorry for them, because they're feeling sorry for themselves, as if they are the victim of a very special circumstance. So when you tell these people this is the malady and here's what you need to do to, to fix it, they say, you, but you don't understand. I'm a very unique person. Uh, the scriptures don't really uh, apply to me in that way. And this is a sinful malady that can only be characterized as self-idolatry. And it is painfully evident within the church of the living God as well as in the society at large. You tell them, look, repent, mortify sin, and say, yeah, but you don't understand. My situation is very, very special. That doesn't work for me. I tried that. You're telling me that the word of God applied to life doesn't work? So this type of narcissist sees himself as a victim of circumstance and is part of the critical race theory mantra. Saul sees everything from the vantage point of his narcissistic paranoia victimhood. Notice, and there is none of you, notice, there is none of you, not one of you, that is sorry for me. What a pitiful, sniveling, idiotic tyrant. Saul then says, fourth, and there is none of you, notice, nobody, not one, that is sorry for me, or showeth unto me that my son had stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. That was an outright lie. David was not the the one who was lying in wait to slay him. It was the other way about. It was actually Saul that was guilty of this very thing. He was lying in wait to slay David. And this is true of the narcissist who accuses others of the very thing that they are guilty of. The democratic Marxists are quite proficient at this tactic. They say, oh, this is what that party is doing, but they're actually doing it. They call everyone a racist. They call everyone hateful uncompromising rebels, when in fact they are guilty of extreme racism, hatred, and an unwillingness to compromise. Saul is ranting before all of his servants, and in the midst of them, while he's ranting, there is Doeg, the Edomite. Doeg, the Edomite, who saw David in the house of Ahimelech, the priest. And Doeg is among those that hears of Saul's ranting. And upon hearing this, 
in a deliberate attempt to destroy David and bring charges of treason against the priest Ahimelech and the entire priesthood, Doeg steps up and he addresses Saul. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, which was said over the servants of Saul. So here's the captain of Saul's army. And he said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob. He understood exactly what he was doing. He's not just acting innocently. He was able to ascertain the ravages of Saul's insanity and the murderous intent that Saul had for anyone that would help David. So he brings it up. Well, I'm just saying, you know, I saw you know David in the house of Ahimelech. Very calculated. And I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Atab. And he inquired of the Lord for him. Ahimelech, the priest, was ministering to David, inquiring of the Lord for him. And he gave him food. And he gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. I saw it with my own eyes. He knew that would enrage Saul. It would bring him over the top. It would bring Saul's boiling point to overflowing, knowing that Ahimelech had aided David, the priest of God, aiding David, not aiding Saul, but aiding David. Saul is now determined to make an example of him and all of his house. You defy me? There are consequences. Verse 11. Then the king sent to call Ahimelech the priest, in all his father's house, the priests that were in Nob, and they came, all of them, to the king. Now, having been summoned, Ahimelech now awaits the reason why he was called to the courtroom of Saul. He doesn't know why. He's totally innocent. Notice, and Saul says to him, verse 13, Why have you conspired, making an accusation without any evidence, why have you conspired against me, thou and the son of Jesse, in that thou hast given him bread and a sword, and hast inquired of God for him, that he should rise against me, to lie in wait as at this day. Now by Saul's accusation, he again shows that, that he's still paranoid, thinking that everyone is against him. But Ahimelech is innocent, and he tells Saul as much. Notice his defense, firstly. He reminds Saul that David is his faithful servant. That is at last what Ahimelech knew of David. In fact, that's what David made Ahimelech think when he came to the priest's house. So he reminds Saul that David is his faithful servant and the king's son-in-law. Then Ahimelech, verse 14, answered the king and said, And who is so faithful among all thy servants as David, which is the king's son-in-law? That would have brought him over the top too. David is faithful. Why are you after him? And he's your son-in-law. He's your blood. Secondly, he then tells Saul that David did everything that Saul told him to do. At least that is what Ahimelech thought. And goeth at thy bidding. Thirdly, Ahimelech then testifies to Saul that David is an honorable man. That really must have sent Saul over the top. And is honorable in thine house. Fourthly, He then tells Saul that as a result of David's honorable standing in the house of Saul and thinking that David was still in the good graces of Saul, Ahimelech gave him the aid he needed. Verse 15, Did I then begin to inquire of God for him 
Of course, because he thought David was on the king's bidding. He thought he was still in the good graces of Saul. But all of this, everything that was true, was infuriating Saul. The truth always infuriates the wicked. So seeing this, and the madness that must have been evident in the king's countenance, Ahimelech then begs for mercy. Notice what he says. Let not the king impute anything unto his servant, nor to all the house of my father, for thy servant knew nothing of all this, less or more. I had no idea. I had no idea, Saul, what was going on behind closed doors. And Ahimelech the priest begs for mercy. But Saul is fresh out of mercy. In fact, he knows nothing of mercy. He knows one thing and one thing only, death, destruction, murder, and violence. Violence, vengeance, destruction against all those that he views as his enemies. And without so much as a trial or any discussion whatsoever, Saul passes a death sentence upon Ahimelech and his house as easily as one passes the salt at the dinner table. It is, however, not enough that the priest is executed, but in addition to this wicked act, Saul seeks to execute his entire household. And that is what tyrants do. If you confederate with those who tell the truth, you will die too. If you resist, the tyrant will destroy your entire household, especially those of the household of faith. And here we see the tyrant targeting Christians in all of Christendom. And the king said, verse 16, Thou shalt surely die, Ahimelech, thou and all thy father's house. Without a trial, without witnesses, without a defense, Saul passes judgment. Saul then commands his foot soldiers to fall upon the priests in an all-out slaughter, but they refuse. And the king said unto the footmen that stood about him, Turn and slay the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David, and because they knew when he fled and did not show it to me. But the servants of the king would not put forth their hand to fall upon the priests of the Lord. They still had a conscience. Saul's men still had a sense of right and wrong. They still maintained the conscience, and they refused to kill the priests. They knew that Saul was out of his mind. They knew that Saul's command was unjust. Not only unjust, but inhumane and irreligious. There was no court hearing. There was no trial. This was a bold move by these foot soldiers against the madness of the king and the unlawful mandate of Saul. And this took great courage. You have to give it to these men. Threatened as they were by Saul, this took great courage since Saul could have sought to kill them too. The reason why he could not have his footmen killed is that they banded together. How's he going to kill them all? They stood as one man. And there's power in that unity. And Saul knew he still needed them. Certainly, Doeg couldn't kill Saul's entire army since they were all well armed. In the same way as Doeg, and there were more of them than Doeg. Their weaponry was their safety, as was their unity. This shows that when people band together as one, especially when they have weapons of warfare, it is hard for the tyrant to control them. That is why the tyrant tries to divide, divide and conquer. So within the footman's unity, there was great strength. 
But seeing the refusal of Saul's soldiers, Saul commands wicked Doeg because he knew the depravity of Doeg. Because a depraved man will be able to identify another depraved man very easily because they're both depraved. There's camaraderie there. So he identifies wicked Doeg and then commands him to take an absolute, insane, murderous action against priests who are unarmed. And the king said to Doeg, Turn thou and fall upon the priests, those who represent God himself and the Christ, those who represent Christianity itself and Christendom, turn upon them and fall upon them. And Doeg the Edomite turned. He didn't say, are you sure? Maybe we should think about it another way. No. He was ready, as ravenous, as vengeful, as wicked, as depraved as Saul. So was this Doeg. He turns immediately. And he falls upon the priests and he slew on that day four score and five persons, all of them who were priests, all of them who wore the linen ephod, 85 men of God, hacking them, killing them. It was a bloodbath. As God removes his hand of restraint from Doeg, from Saul, we have a bloodbath. The Reverend Long comments, he says, the refusal of Saul's soldiers underscores the enormity of Saul's crime. Doeg the Edomite shows no compunction and at the king's command kills on that day 85 men who were the linen ephod. Two other times in the book of Samuel, the priestly linen ephod is mentioned, once being worn by the boy Samuel and once being worn by King David. Both Samuel and David, each in his own way, proved to be a nemesis of Saul. As Saul distances himself even further and further from Yahweh, his animosity toward those aligned with Yahweh only intensifies. Let me just repeat that. As a man furthers himself away from God, his hatred for God's people and God's church further intensifies. That is a principle. The tyrant Saul targets the priests of God in the same way as the tyrants today target the people of God. And while this was a horrible act, Doeg goes even further. That was enough. 85 men killing all of them in a bloodbath. Unarmed men showing the depth of his own depravity when he slays the entire city of Nob. He goes further by slaying the entire city of Nob including men, women, children, in addition to livestock, which was a move to destroy the economy of the city as well. He wanted to just decimate, wipe it off the face of the map, destroy a city, destroy its people and its economy. And that's the tactic of the tyrant. Verse 19, In Nob, the city of the priests, smote he with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and suckling and oxen and asses and sheep with the edge of the sword. It's almost unimaginable. Adam Clark observes, he says, this is one of the worst acts in the life of Saul. His malice was implacable and his wrath was cruel and there's no motive of justice or policy by which such a barbarous act can be justified. 
the Reverend Scott adds this. He says, Doeg, doubtless by Saul's authority, not satisfied with the blood of the priests, treated the inhabitants of Nob as the devoted enemies of God and with more severity than Saul had exercised toward the Amalekites. No doubt they meant to intimidate all the Israelites from showing the least favor to David. End quote. The heart of man, make no mistake about it, outside of the restraint of God, the heart of man, desperately wicked, who can know it? But God, however, will not leave himself without a witness. Doeg's act of vengeance must have reached the city of Nob before Doeg could enter into the city to decimate it. No doubt, this is how Avatar was able to escape. We see this in verse 20. And one of the sons of Ahimelech named Avatar escaped and fled after David. The Reverend Howie says this, Tidings of what passed at court had reached Nob before the bloody Doeg arrived thither. Avatar, therefore, the only surviving son of Ahimelech, thought it high time to consider his safety and flies to David, who receives him very affectionately and assures him of his protection. God will not leave himself without a witness. Upon arriving before David, the young man relays all that had transpired at Nob, and Avatar showed David that Saul had slain the Lord's priests. Now you think about this, how David loved the Lord and loved his priests and loved Ahimelech. This was naturally very, very disturbing to David. Very disturbing to not only David, but his 400 men that were with him. And note his lamentation. And David said to Abathar, I knew it that day when Dog the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. I have occasioned the death of all of the persons of thy father's house. Perhaps David was thinking that maybe I should have approached Doeg and killed him right then and there. If I would have only known that this would have been his response to me being at the house of the Lord. He takes upon himself responsibility. Now certainly it was not David's fault. But nevertheless... He takes responsibility as a faithful shepherd, the leader of a free people. He saw himself as the protector of the house of God, and yet the house of God is now decimated. So what could have David done? What could he have done to protect the priests? For one thing, knowing the madness of Saul, David could have warned the priests that David's visit might bring upon them the wrath of Saul. He he didn't do that. Maybe that was on his mind. And this is why we should always be prepared to meet the wrath of the tyrant with cunning with forethought, with foreknowledge, since we never know who's watching and waiting in secret to slay the people of God. We have to be very, very careful what we say, what we do, who we say it to, when we say it, how we say it, how we parse our words, whether or not we're using social media or not. We live in a day of tyranny. Make no mistake about it, just because the governorship now is turned to the right, men's hearts are still wicked. And natural man seeks to destroy the Christ of God. Furthermore, we should never be lulled into a false sense of security, thinking that simply because we take sanctuary in the house of God, we are immune to the likes of Doeg. How many times have you heard of betrayal within the house of God, even in our own house, with the Judases and the Demases? Perhaps if Ahimelech had the sword of Goliath still hidden in his house, he might have been able to protect the city of Nob. Maybe he could have protected. He had the weapons of warfare. 
maybe this wouldn't have happened. Maybe Doeg would have taken a second second look at the situation because there was a possibility that he might be slain. So let this be a lesson to us. As it was for the Puritans who kept their guns handy and their powder dry for fear of an attack from the godless neighboring tribes, David took for granted that Doeg would remain silent. But his silence cost an entire city to be destroyed and David is taking responsibility for it and he is lamenting because of it. David then comforts the young priest and makes a solemn oath of safety. Abide thou with me, fear not, for he that seeketh my life seeketh thy life, but with me thou shalt be in safety. David now understands fully. If he didn't before, he does now. Is that what it took for David to realize how wicked Saul was? But he understands now. He understands now fully the length that Saul will go in his madness to kill David, to wipe out the lineage, the witness, and the dynasty of Christ by killing David. This is what he wanted more than anything else. Saul wanted more than anything else to destroy the lineage of Christ. And yet, as a faithful shepherd, David promises safety for the young priest. God then provides a curious opportunity for David and his men by raising up the Philistines once again. A distraction to Saul as a further testimony of David's leadership capabilities which we shall explore next time when we move into chapter 23 of 1 Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen.